Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 107 of The Morning After. I'm Jesse Kiefer. I'm Sarah Kamen. Sari, how's your week been? Well, it's just been great. <laughs> how's yours been? It's been so good. I, I've been going to the food book fair a little bit, which is happening, which is really nice. We had Elizabeth Thacker Jones on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about it, giving a little preview. And then, so then on, what was it, Wednesday? Yeah. We had Wednesday. an interview with Tim Wendelbow. Yeah, but you guys don't know about that yet. Well, they, they're going to know about that. Well, now that. you know about it. Well, now they, now you know. But you haven't heard it. Nope, not yet. But you want to hear Still it. Still in our back pocket. <laughs> exactly. Nope. But um, Tim Windeblow, like seriously, Mr. Coffee of, of I just want to say Scandinavia. Well, he is a self-described coffee wizard. By you. No. Someone else called him a coffee wizard? Oh, I thought you in fact, thought it was your original pointing of the phrase. Oh, no, 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 no. He let that one loose, and I just took it and ran and never stopped the I, whole show. So I thought then he said he was a coffee troll because there's a lot of trolls in Nor- Norway. That was an addendum that he added later. <laughs> but, but you've been going to the food book fair all week. What, um, what uh, seminars have you seen so far? Um, well, funny that you should ask, because we are in studio today with a couple of lovely ladies, one of them being Yael Raviv, who is is the founder and creator of the Umami Festival. And uh, before we get into that, she launched her initial event of her festival at the Food Book Fair on Friday night, which I attended. Um, And also let you know right now that we have Sarah Kramer and Sarah Hymanson in the studio as well, both formerly of Glossary. So we're going to be talking with them later. Um, So that was the, the first event that I saw, which was really nice. Um, Yael, who also happens to be my professor at NYU Food Studies, give it up. Honeyandschmaltz.com. Honeyandschmaltz.com. Had a really, really nice opening event to launch off her uh, festival. And we'll get into the details of what that festival is in a moment. But um, you had a couple of things on your mind. I just, I I wanted to touch on a point. You know, people talk about, you know, when you have a dog, like you start to look like your dog. Mm -hmm. I think that the same is true for your job, or at least it is true in, in my in my experience, um, I, you know, I, I work in restaurants and I have for a long time. I mean, Sari, you've worked in restaurants too. I sure did. Do you think you look like your job from that? Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, I, I think this is totally relatable though. So, so after our show last week, just standing in line for the bathroom. I do think I look like my dog though, <laughs> which is a compliment <laughs> to both of us. Isn't it a shih tzu? She's a lasa also. <laughs> Yeah, the same hair. No, I style. see it. I see it. Totally. She's totally. So cute. <laughs> um, no, so I'm standing in line for the bathroom and these two girls are, you know, trying to push the door open and I look at them and you know, I was like, Oh, I you know, I think it's it's locked. I think the door's locked because somebody's in there. And they go, Oh, do you work here? You're just so intelligent that you just have so much authority. I mean, how could you the the idea that if it's locked, there might be someone in there. I mean, only someone with that kind of understanding of the restaurant would be able to figure that out. Well, exactly. And that's what was going through my head. But then I said, do I look like I work here? And they said, yeah, 
You do. <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't work here at all. But this is not the first time that's happened to me. And yeah. I just, I want I think to I know used to get that more. if there are other people out there because like, I don't know why I feel slightly offended by that. You know, but- I think, <laughs> I, I like, I, I think back to those days when I worked in restaurants and I did it for such a long time. And when you're in the midst of it, no matter where you go, you still have a sense of like trying to, you, you can't help but pay attention to everything that's going on. So I think it's hard to kind of really relax and just accept the fact that you're, a consumer. Well, I th- I also think it's because I walk with such confidence and authority and authority. Um, so I mean, but the, the kicker for me was when I was at my favorite Korean restaurant in the East Village called Doksuni, and I was having a lovely dinner, and I got up to use the restroom, and this gentleman at a table started like waving his hand in the air and saying like, "Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me," and so finally I stopped and I was yes, yeah, what, what, what can I do for you? And he was like, can we get the check? <laughs> well, that's because you're Korean. And I mean, I know this is radio <laughs> and I know my voice sounds Korean, but I, you know, I am, I am a Caucasian woman with okay, light brown hair Korean. and green eyes. Um, so I am, you know, I, I am so not Korean and I just wanted <laughs> to go to the so bathroom and I just responded to him like, I don't work here. And he was like, I don't care. <laughs> Give me my check. But, you know, I think that's a lesson to people to look your server in the eye and uh, connect and uh, remember what they look like. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll start walking with less confidence. I don't know, <laughs> because I, um, not to drop names or whatever, or brag, but I did go to interview Daniel Holzman from the Meatball Shop. And I thought that I looked like me, which was... A journalist, because that's what I was doing. You I was going exactly to interview like him. Yes, yes. I, I had my journalist hat on, and I met him at his commissary kitchen. And I walked in there, and there was like all these people working in the kitchen. And someone looked at me and was like, "Oh, you do you need an apron? Like, are you working <laughs> the dishwasher today?" And I was like, uh, "I am wearing a dress. <laughs> this is not what I would be wearing." So, like, that really baffled me. <laughs> See, it totally happens. It's just when you walk with an air of confidence. That they they hand you an apron <laughs> and some soap. <laughs> well, I think speaking of airs of confidence, I think we should take a break and come back with the lovely Yael Raviv from uh, Umami Festival. Yay! Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Seeing a need to help people sort through all the misinformation about healthy eating, Whole Foods Market added a seventh core value to promote the health of our stakeholders through healthy eating education. In our stores, we give you the tools you need for choosing the most nutritious foods and healthy recipes, as well as offering classes with nutritionists and cooking coaches to help inspire good health and well-being. Stop by your local store today and learn more about our Health Starts Here program and wellness clubs or online at wholefoodsmarket.com slash healthstartshere. And you're back listening to The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your co-host, Sari Kamen. And I am your other co-host, Jesse Kiefer. Hi, Jesse. Sari. Okay. So <laughs> so we have a really exciting show today. It is chock full of lovely ladies up in here. Um, so I want to start today with uh, someone I'm really especially excited to have because not only is she the founder and creator of the Umami Festival, she is also... My professor at NYU, uh, where I study food studies. So her name is Yael Raviv. Hi. Hi. And Doctor. Are... 
Dr. Yale, Don't right? Don't you just use that term if you're a medical doctor in the U.S.? I didn't really I come wouldn't. in handy for me. I'm, I'm sorry for my lack of respect, Dr. <laughs> That's Dr. Yale. Okay. We can dispense with that for the rest of the show. In my defense, she told us to call her Yale. As well you should. <laughs> I'd be like, weird if I was the only one in class. I'd be like, well, doctor. <laughs> it always makes me feel like I should have a white coat on. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, no, at NYU, we, we keep it cool. <laughs> So, so this is a woman who wears many hats. Um, you're an adjunct professor. Uh, you teach food and performance, which is the class that I'm in, yep. which is so cool. Um, so you're a food performance artist yourself in many ways, or that's your background. You're a scholar of. Yeah, my background is in theater, but I did production work um, yeah. for many years. And then I, I wrote that famous dissertation that I got the doctor thing for uh, in performance studies department at NYU. And I wrote it about nationalism and cuisine in Israel, which will totally be a great segue for your next half of the show, but is not relevant. Look at really you doing now. our job right now. Uh, but, you simmer down. <laughs> but, uh, and then I started teaching uh, at uh, the food studies department. So I was teaching f- uh, courses on food and culture and food and art. And from those courses, I ended up uh, at some point when my daughters grew up a little bit and I wanted to work more, I kind of came up with the idea of the Umami Food and Art Festival. Oh, so Umami came out of the coursework. In, in a weird way. Oh, I, I, I had didn't realize that. I had an artist, um, I had artists come in and do stuff with my class every now and then. And with one of them, we did a sort of concert, Fast Forward. His name is Fast Forward. And we, really? yes, oh. he totally officially <laughs> legally changed it. He's a great guy, he's a musician. He works with Found Sound, kind of John Cajun inspired type thing. And uh, we did a project in the department's kitchen with kitchen sounds. And we did the score in the class, uh, you know, uh, played it and afterwards we were talking about how cool that would be to bring professional musicians into the kitchen and do the same thing and I was like oh and somehow from that encounter the idea of doing a food and art festival came up and our first festival was in 2008 and FAST was one of the performers that participated in that uh, festival and then from then on we do a bi-yearly it's a bi-yearly festival it's a non-for-profit of food and art festival and we are happening right now and exactly this is our fourth installment in 2014 great yep so the name is umami yes (laughs) and and what made you i mean that's it's it's not that that word is is overused but it seems to be used in in so many different ways right yes but i have to say in 2008 it wasn't overused yet (laughs) i guess you started that trend yes it's totally us we started the umami trend no but um when when we came up with the idea, and that was also, well, it was uh, out of a conversation with Fast. And for one thing, we really like the way it sounds. It I mean, sound because nice. umami sounds really good. It has a um, nice mouth feel. Yes. As Jesse would say. And uh, we like the meaning, you know, the idea of this sort of, you know, meaty, earthy kind of meaning of the word. And at the time, it wasn't that common. And we wanted people to ask, what the heck is umami? Can you say uh-huh. heck on the radio? Yes. You can, um, you can yeah. say a lot of things on the radio. Yeah, pretty much. So I can probably say less in front of my kids than I can here. Right? So, um, yeah, so we wanted people to ask what it is. And we used to get questions, what is umami? And we got a lot of press because of the word umami in the first festival. So you did start it. So, well... You, you know, the press out. It was part of that. You know, we were part of that early wave. I feel like it was you and Iron Chef. Yeah. <laughs> like on, on cable. No? We've been talking about Iron Chef a lot in food and performance class, too. Because it's such a cool thing, right? The Iron Chef Japanese. It's so fun. Yeah. Well, the performance of food. It's, it's just been a really 
it's such a fascinating class and to go through the whole scope you know starting with the like very feminist expressionist uh you know the karen finleys and the women in the 70s who are like rolling around in chocolate pudding and yeah, you know, to to Iron Chef and and the Cooking Network and the Food Channel and yes, and we ended up with Ferran Adria and Ferran Adria. Yeah, it's it's really if you're at NYU or going to go to NYU, I, I recommend taking it. Oh, cool! <laughs> so the department so, thinks. Yeah. So I want to know. I mean, you uh, you obviously have a performance background. When did this food element kind of get involved in in your? studies well beyond the fact that everybody that works in theater waiters on the side or bartends or whatever which is you know um (laughs) but beyond that uh in between my undergrad and graduate school I had a year while I was I was already in the states and I was applying to graduate programs and I kind of had the year in between and I was in Philadelphia at the time with my then boyfriend now husband um and I went to culinary school because I had a year off and I always loved food and cooking and so I did that um at the restaurant school in Philadelphia. And of course, I'm way, way too lazy to actually make that into a career. <laughs> so, um, and I thought that would be it. As a woman running like three well, different organizations. Well, the thing is, um, well, it's a very different type of time commitment, I can tell you that. Um, and um, I never thought I would do anything with it, really, professionally. I went to graduate school at the Performance Studies Department at NYU because I was interested in kind of, you know, not straight up theater, but more carnivals and puppets and masks and stuff like that. And I never thought I would do anything in the academic realm that has to do with food. But as I was um, starting to think about a dissertation, which I didn't also to begin with, uh, the idea of food came up. And probably because I took a class with Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimlet, who's a folklorist by training, and she's done a lot of food work before everybody did food work. And I was really inspired. And I came up with this idea of doing something about food, national identity, sort of the performance of national identity through food in Israel. And I thought she would totally laugh me out of her office. But in fact, this was in in the late 90s. So, you know, she didn't laugh at me. She thought it was a good idea. And that's when I started kind of incorporating food in to my academic research. And it went on from there because it's just much more fun to talk about food than it is to talk about the history of theater or whatever it is. So, Yeah, I agree. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Umami right now. I know you had a couple events. Yes, we had uh, a really wonderful uh, couple of events with the League of Kitchens, and I want to mention them because they're new organizations. They're really cool. Lisa Gross, Gross is the founder, and it's... Um, they do workshops in women's homes, so immigrant women from different ethnic backgrounds that do these intensive workshops in their homes. Um, and you really get to learn all about these cuisines and also meet really, really wonderful women that are amazing in terms of, you know, if you talk about expertise in cooking, oh my God, it's unbelievable. And they actually say that a lot of professional chefs actually sign up for these things because you get this really in-depth study. Well, yeah, I mean, talk about authenticity. and Totally. And you go to all these different neighborhoods and you go to people's homes, you really learn a culture. And we did a special, usually um, the way their their work goes is uh, you go online and you choose the cuisine and the person and the place. Um, we did a kind of a twist on it for Umami where you kind of signed up blind. You didn't know where you were going um, and you had to sign up by yourself. You couldn't go with someone. So we kind of wanted to really highlight the sort of immigrant experience, the fact that the local population in essence would be the ones out of place and out of their elements and the immigrants are the ones in control and in charge and teaching and powerful and know what they're all about Mm, Um, and it was beautiful and we followed it up excuse me 
Um, with a panel discussion in the department that was co-hosted by the Nutrition and Food Studies Department, Krishnan Dure, the chair moderator. It was lovely. Um, so that's gone. <laughs> we also had a great event with the Brooklyn uh, Kitchen here in Williamsburg, um, a food and art challenge where we bring students from culinary and arts programs to collaborate, work together in teams, creating projects at the intersection of food and art. And just now we worked with a food book fair uh, just on Friday on uh, food and plus growing plus music, which was their opening event and one of our kind of featured events. It was really fun. It was very fun. <laughs> and I loved everybody that contributed to that event. It was um, uh, Bennett Koneski and, uh, Koneski and Edith Gawler, who are work song musicians, and they do kind of bluegrassy folk music. They're lovely. I mean, they work on the farm and They're they farmers. do music. Yeah, and, and then they sing great. about working on the farm. Hmm. And they've kind of collected in their repertoire um, different farming songs from having traveled all over, all over. the United States. Yeah, and abroad. It's and great. abroad, yeah. And then uh, we followed that up with some food and that was sourced by Quincipal. So from again, from local, all local farms, this particular case, and cooked by Anna Parra, who, who, who's a chef that cooks only using local foods. Imagine in the Northeast, right, in New York, year-round, only sourcing locally. And yeah, there's it was, these big bowls of just radishes and yeah. greens that look like they were just just picked yes and they were right <laughs> yeah, yeah it was so so um and we had the art installations by leah gothier um who just does these beautiful very poetic um kind of creations bringing together food and kind of manipulate well she, she works with growing stuff so she grows vegetables or in this particular case herbs and she kind of manipulates them in beautiful ways it's really hard to describe yeah. but it's beautiful to see and it's been really fun to work with the Food Book Fair. Today is, I think, the last day of the Food Book Fair. They have great events. We've worked with them in the past. It's always a pleasure, um, you know, to be part of that event. And we have one more event coming up on May 13th. Uh, which, is that the final? There's only one more event to attend? Um, this is the only one that's available for sale. Now we're, in a, we're trying to figure out there's a one last event that we should have towards the end of May, but I can't even tell you the details yet because it's okay. been going through some birthing pains. Um, all I can say is it involves some urban artists and ice cream. <laughs> so okay. check back in. Do you think that most people like? <laughs> but the event on May 13th is with uh, Emily Baltz, who's a photographer and designer and artist, and mixologist uh, Pamela Witzinger, who's oh, yeah. also she's in, in the, the department. Yeah. Uh, and she's the president of the New York uh, Bartenders Association or something like that. Yeah, and she maybe works butchering that. Yeah. Um, and it's, gonna, it's titled The Means of Production, Shaken or Stirred. And it's going to be, well, there's going to be a lot of alcohol. Uh, and we're going to look at the so way bartenders sold. make drinks, kind of focusing on the movement and the rhythms um, of that. And it's going to be really awesome. Huh. So the festival isn't, I guess for me, like when I immediately think festival, I think, you know, like a big open pavilion where you've got all of this different art happening um, in different places. This is more of like a roving kind of Exactly. Actually, that's an an interesting question because when we started out in 2008, everything happened in one space. We were in the roulette, then the roulette space in Soho. Since then, they moved to Brooklyn. But uh, like anything else, cool. Um, But... uh, uh, it was all in one space, but since then we changed our model. All our following three festivals take place in a variety of venues throughout the city, um, mostly in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, and for us, it works really well. We don't spend the money on a venue, obviously, which is good for a little nonprofit. Uh, but also, it really fits our mission because what we try to do is create these 
um, collaborations and these ongoing relationships between people from the art world and people from the food world. And a great way of doing it is by inserting sort of food events into art spaces and art events into food spaces. Yeah, and it makes them more of environmental you know, art yep. installations in a way, you know, when you can incorporate the environment that you're working in and, yeah, and adjust it depending on where you're going to be. Absolutely. And and so every event is different. And also we reach out to new audiences with every new venue. Mm-hmm. And we've worked with IBM Center for Art Technology and the James Beard Foundation and, you know, Aster Center for Food and Wine and, and NYU and, you know, the Brooklyn Kitchen. So it's all these different spaces and each one brings in something unique and it allows us to create sometimes ongoing for, for our artists sometimes it um, begins these ongoing relationships with these new places which is always exciting for us yeah and I know your mission statement says that I mean the festival encourages uh, artists who work in non-traditional media does having kind of that roving you know in different locations encourage more of those type of artists uh, probably um, and and yes one of the things we really try to do is encourage art that's based in everyday life and materials um, and if you want to kind of insert art into or, or make sure it's connected to everyday life. It's always nice to have it situated, you know, in life, I guess, not in a gallery space in, in the same way that we kind of think of art as something you just kind of watch on the wall, you know, see it on the wall and you can't touch it and you can't lick it or anything. And in our most of our events that are much more interactive. So it's nice to be yeah. out of the gallery and the, space. And the inverted, you know, when it comes to food, it's not just something that you put in your mouth and chew and then swallow and it's done. So. Exactly. So it's not about food. Like as when we go to a restaurant, we, we try to encourage people to also kind of the flip side of the art bit is to try and encourage people to think about food as a creative medium mm-hmm. you know not just oh this tastes delicious or this could use some more salt or lemon or whatever but oh this really made me think about immigration in New York City in the 21st century or right. you know so to think about food in that way yeah mm-hmm. like kind of when you inverse art or the way you think about it and then you inverse food and then you know, honing in on where those two points intersect, I think that's where it gets really interesting. Exactly. I think intersections are always really interesting. We call it the sweet spot, right? You know, how these two circles. I think I learned that from you. Well, hope, well hopefully I taught you something over the course of the semester, so that's good. Well, like speaking of food as a creative medium, I was I was thinking about that, and I was wondering, like, is there any other creative medium that's also based upon survival, the human race? Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me sound really like, <laughs> scary. No, it just, it does, I don't think it sounds scary. I just think it was it, it's it's such a simple everyday thing that that Absolutely. we utilize. So, but that's I think that goes. I mean, I think recently we've elevated a lot of those very basic essential things to a level, you know, to a new level. If you look at fashion or architecture, mm-hmm. any of those things really start out with survival, and then we're, you know. That's what makes, I mean, that's the cool thing about being human, right? It's like elevating those everyday essential things into a place of art. Yeah. Right. And, and certainly there's a lot of tension within that conversation. I mean, we talk totally. so much, you know, how can food be art and how do you justify that? And who says so? I mean, these things that can serve in, you know, really quotidian ways. Is it fair to elevate them mm-hmm. to that status? Well, and I think, and I definitely think that not all food is art. But I think in some instances, it totally can be. I mean, some people work with it in that way, uh, both in the restaurant industry and in the art world. Uh, And I think it's great that we can talk about it in those terms now. I think that's a very new conversation, but I think now it's becoming more... um, Com- more common, more, you know, something that people are like, yeah, food is art, sure. You know, it w- didn't used to be like that. 
just a very short time ago. Yeah. So it's nice. Well, certainly the performance of food has played into that conversation, I think. Totally. And with the, and, and absolutely chefs like Fran Adria, you know, or Grant Ackett or Heston Blumenthal have really contributed to, you know, they have the celebrity status. And when, if they kind of acknowledge uh, that their food is in that realm, this conceptual thing, this, this in the sort of in the realm of art, then other chefs are more willing to take that on as mm-hmm. well, which is nice. Yeah. And certainly just putting them on television. Yep. <laughs> and treating them like celebrities. Well, the funny thing was when I w- was coming here today, one of the things that I was thinking of is like how brave of Heritage Radio to talk about food and just this audio <laughs> medium because we're so used to food being such a visual medium, mm. right? I mean, it's in these, um, you know, apps and television shows and, we all, and everybody takes pictures of their food and it's kind of cool to be able to kind of strip all that away and just have yeah, talk nice. about it. Yeah, to talk about it. Yeah, we like it. Um, so, Umami Festival, where can we find out more about it? What if we want to get involved? Totally. Um, <laughs> so, www.umamifestival.org is our website. And we also have a Facebook page, like us, uh, you know. Um, but if you check out the website, our program is on there. And you can see, you can get tickets to this final event on May 13th. Or you could join in and volunteer. Or you could be in touch with us for future events. Actually, very recently, we've gone through a bit of a transition in terms of structure. And we've officially joined forces with the New York Food Museum. We've integrated the two organizations. So over the next year or so, we're going to do probably more events in between festivals. Great. So and you're on Twitter in. too, right? Yes. At Omami Festival? Yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you can see we need a social media guy. Oh, gal. Thank you, Gal. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. subway likes on ambulance it's a train train heading home and you hold me close in self-defense cause you're
And we're back here on the morning after, also in studio, two lovely ladies, both named Sarah, Sarah Kramer and Sarah Hymanson, both formerly of Glassery, and they are doing a dinner at City Grit, and uh, they've come in to, to kind of tell us about that and um, basically how they, they got to uh, where they are now. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. We're thrilled to be here. I think one of you should adopt an accent so that we can... Uh, that will be Sarah Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on my British with my boyfriend, so... Um, but we can just go uh, by Kramer for me, if you like, or no, Sarah no. Kramer fully. You can't be SK, because I'm SK also, so that would get really confusing. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> well, a room full of Sarahs, but I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I'm so. Scary. I guess I want to I want to know how you you two kind of have gotten together. I know that Sarah, you you opened Glassery as the chef there, and Sarah, you were Sue, and so I know you met that way. But um, I guess how did you get to the point to uh, branch off together? Well, we actually didn't meet then. <gasps> you met before then. No, the real backstory. <laughs> <laughs> we met probably two or three years before that. Yeah, like three years prior. I think maybe two. We overlapped for. Three or four days, <laughs> very briefly, <laughs> while I was working at the Brooklyn Kitchen and Sarah was working for the Meat Hook. And I was um, in their like back lab um, slicing like just bus tubs of cabbage, just so much cabbage, more <laughs> totally cabbage, your time, right? uh, more cabbage than anyone ever wants to see in their life, like let alone in one day. Um, I but- would be like, here she is again, <laughs> just still with the cabbage. <laughs> And Sarah was like putting stickers, like price stickers on different things. Just, just the most miserable. Also miserable. <laughs> just doing really tedious task work. But um, lovely places to work, though. Lovely yes, people working there. Doing great things. Um, just, I worked there, too. Just, <laughs> not, it was a, a transitional yeah, Transitional for both of us, but I got a lot out of it. But we did meet then. We, uh, Sarah was leaving um, uh, after those three or four days to go work at Blue Hill where I had worked previously. And so she told me she was going to go work there. And I gave her the, uh, the knowing, like, oh, good luck. <laughs> and I was like, she must think that I'm not a good cook. Oh, or I think that you've got, like, a serious, like, butt kicking ahead of you <laughs> um, in a great way. And as it turns out, in a really great way, because um, it uh, gave us a, a, like, sort of similar foundation from which to draw. Um, and when she came and worked at Glassery, which took some heavy convincing, um, it meant that we actually could see a lot of things Similarly, and kind of understand where the other one was coming from, from like a technical aspect, and um, in thinking about you know coming together on projects or on specific dishes, we like would find that um, we'd have the same thought before we even stated it. So it uh, it just felt really natural um, at Glassery, and we felt like after Glassery, it was important to try to think about how to continue that relationship. And so the style. I mean, you both were at Blue Hill, so. I think you immediately get the like the infusion of local ingredients. And then we were just talking about kind of the idea of glossary was Middle Eastern flavors, but also with the idea of um, of local ingredients. Do you feel like for you both right now, like that is that is your cooking style? It was certainly our cooking style at Glassery, um, and I think it's important to draw from. Mm-hmm. And I think going forward that we want to um, have a broad perspective on what we're doing, really respect the ingredients, but be able to maintain a sort of um, 
through line and a cohesiveness in our food going forward so that everything we make feels like it's coming from uh, the same place in a way that like it continues to stay fresh and exciting but makes sense within the context of us as the chefs of that food. So now with your City Grit dinner, which we've had Sarah Simmons on the show before uh, talking about City Grit, which is basically like, I almost want to call it like a, a classroom or just a I think a she salon. calls it a salon. Yeah, yeah, a salon. Culinary salon. Culinary salon for, for chefs from all over the world, all over the country to come in and cook a meal. And you guys are involved now. So coming from, from Glassery, what is the style of food that you guys are making for the City Grit dinner? I would say it's still very much grounded in Middle Eastern flavors, um, fresh and fun. Definitely still um, on the seasonal front as well and trying to treat products um, as that product, trying to really um, like give that product ownership of itself in a way, um, really let it... Uh, be the best fava bean it can be within a context of other things that um, help that fava bean be the best fava bean it can be. Were either of you interested in Middle Eastern cooking before you worked at Glossary, or is it something that you've? I mean, I definitely, definitely was. Um, in fact, before Glossary, it had been kind of this like. Um, you know, latent dream of mine, even though I'd been working in like new American restaurants for a long time. Um, it had been this dream of mine to do um, like a more, a new American restaurant that was still very much like local and seasonal, but inspired by Middle Eastern flavors. Cause my mother is um, partially Israeli and I, I grew up um, eating a lot of these things and um, felt very inspired by them, felt like they were kind of underrepresented in the more contemporary creative landscape in restaurants and food. Um, as opposed, there are plenty of people doing like great traditional things in New York City and in the world with um, with these flavors but I feel like on a contemporary front in like a, you know thinking about moving the industry forward I think that there uh, it it wasn't getting a lot of attention until recently um, it's so food. it's delicious I it's very I, delicious it's hard to say the best <laughs> there's so much out there but it's very delicious and it's very close to my heart um, and I think that uh, Sarah I mean I've cooked I hadn't really thought very much about cooking Middle Eastern food before Glassery. I've cooked a lot of Asian food, a lot of Chinese. You were Mission Chinese. I was at Mission Chinese for a little while. Um, I've cooked a lot of Indian food, a lot of Vietnamese food. Um, so I thought of, I might add. <laughs> we have lots of really good family meals. Amazing family <laughs> meals. Um, Which says a lot because family meal is usually like the most forgotten. Just the dregs. Meal. But it's yeah. just the most fun. I love it so much. <laughs> but I thought a lot about spice and a lot about herbs and um, tried really hard to think about the usage of techniques from other cuisines and how I can incorporate that into my very much American cuisine. So I think that when I arrived at Glassery, um, I was just really excited to begin thinking about this other cuisine, Middle Eastern cuisine, and how it's similar to these other foods that I've cooked and just excited about learning about those techniques and flavors. So the Dinner at City Grit is part of their Next Big Thing series. What is that about? Um, well, as far as I understand it, um, it's about taking uh, these, I think it's actually all female this time around too, which is 
kind of an added bonus. Which is definitely the next big thing <laughs> in culinary. Um, yeah, it's a hot topic right now for yeah. sure. Um, but it is about taking um, uh, young chefs who have done some good work, who are um, kind of on the precipice of really discovering kind of what their identity will be in, I think, the food landscape and, uh, you know, maybe their next big project um, that, um, you know, giving them a platform um, under which or on which to uh, just have, yeah, some attention in the stage. And City Grit does a really good job um, giving people uh, just an audience. So when are the dates for the dinner? They are next week. Um, it is, or I guess this upcoming week. We're already there if it's Sunday. It's um, April 30th, Wednesday, and May 1st, Thursday. And so what does it entail on your end? I imagine, you know, people are obviously coming to eat the food, but is there any interaction between you and the guests? We don't know yet. I mean, I'm hoping a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. We haven't done one of these before at City Grit. Um, and I think it's, they have a, a, a way that they do things. I think that's very, like, regimented in, like, a way that restaurants should be. Um, and so I'm sure that we're going to kind of just go with what they want from us. But we would love to talk to people because it, we, we love people. <laughs> it seems like it's, a, it's an environment that's really conducive to having a dialogue. Yeah, I think afterwards, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at, you guys are be during, busy. yeah, we're going to yeah. be a little busy. <laughs> Not to mention, like, a whole new space and working yeah. with people we've never really met. <laughs> but so, is it sold out? Are there tickets still available? There, there are some are tickets. tickets still available. Yeah, but they're, they're going pretty quickly. I mean, Sarah Hymanson has, like, 100 friends who are all, <laughs> like, just rapidly <laughs> signing up. So, <laughs> and my parents, my parents are coming. <laughs> she has 100 friends. And, and I've got my parents pretty much. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, right. I have 100 friends on Facebook. <laughs> that says a lot about <laughs> the two of us. So <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I mean, and we have a million listeners. Who we do have a million listeners who are probably <laughs> clicking away hard. Well, um, we're hoping. We'd love to get some Everyone some should come. It'll be the yeah. most fun. It sounds like the most fun. And do we go to the City Grit website to do that? Yeah. Um, we can also probably give you guys a link if you wanted to attach it um, yeah, to yeah, the, like, the specific tickets, you know, just to like self-promote a little bit. We've got a link for you. That's what we're yeah. here for. So please promote. You should follow us. Yeah, you should follow us. Um, we are on uh, Instagram okay. and Twitter, even though we have yet to tweet. <laughs> um, but we are on Instagram at um, at with or without an H. That's amazing. That is an amazing that's title. The, that's the question so I'll say. Sarah A and Sarah so. H. Exactly. Get it. Well, before we wrap up, I, I kind of, I wanted to ask you to, this is kind of an ongoing thing, and I briefly mentioned it earlier, the Lilith Fair of Food, which is a show that we had um, kind of in reaction to the... I the would t- branch this out to get Alex. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I would love to branch it out. Um, so as, you know, as some two ladies... So I guess I'll I'll give a little backstory. It's it was in response to the Time magazine, um, you know, cover article, the the gods of food and the the big uh, family tree of chefs that did not have one woman on it, and I think maybe had like a side note for like a pastry chef or something like that. I mean, you are both women who have worked in in kitchens for a long time in in big kitchens at Blue Hill in the city Blue Hill Stone Barns you know Mission Chinese um, you were with um, you know the the Marlowe and Sons Diner crew like you know those are a lot of kitchens and, and big deals in New York City so I want to know did you ever get any you know any flack for being female <laughs> was or you know was there was there anything I mean and I just mean like yeah did you feel that you were a different being in that kitchen because you were a female 
I think we have a really different perspective on this. Mm-hmm. So just as Sarah Kramer, I will um, say that, yeah, I definitely felt like there was a difference. Um, there's a very strong, like, bro culture in a lot of kitchens, um, which, like, I was happy to be a part of, but I never felt super included in, um, which was fine um, because I was there to learn and, you know, do my job well, and I think I did that, and I was always supported in a way that... Um, I, you know, and I think that the the term bro also can, like, take many guises. Um, So I don't think it's one thing, but definitely a strong heterosexual male culture in a lot of kitchens, regardless of what bro means to you. Um, But I definitely think that um, I was supported, and I think that's because um, I think hard work and talent does shine through at the end of the day. Um, Though... I also think that sometimes being female in those circumstances and doing your job well can be a boon um, because you get, like, double respect in a way for being able to, like, outcook some of the dudes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but Definitely. I mean, I would agree with Sarah for the most part, though. I think that I was able to feel a bit more comfortable in this kind of bro environment. Um, I felt pretty included in a lot of cases, though it wasn't necessarily the way that I would have chosen to interact with people, which is um, sort of the problem, <laughs> is not having the ability to shape the way that people interact because it felt like that wasn't some right. power that I was given. Right. Like, I think that we both felt included. Like, we were a part of it. We, like, were able to get on we could, it. we could outcook a lot of those men, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because we're clearly both very skilled. <laughs> um, and, um, and we are confident, which helps a lot in this um, profession, because you need to be. And it's also just really, um, like, tense, and the stakes are high, and it's hot, and people can get hurt, and there's all of these things that are happening at once, and so you need to have confidence and drives. But um, I think that... At the end of the day, we weren't able to like contribute to the conversation that was happening in as big of a way as we wanted to. Um, being in positions of management as well, um, I think that I started to have that a little bit more as time went on in in other restaurants. And I like I really did love working for the Tarlo Company, and I think that they do an amazing job, and they're, um, you know, I think very forward thinking in a lot of ways. But I think that we both want to just create a different dynamic for ourselves in a way that we want to exist in a professional life and in a personal life and um, see those things be a little bit more um, aligned with what we want um, as people. I have a question um, for all of you, although it's kind of varied. As people who are in the culinary world and are kind of moving forward now, I'm wondering what you think is going to be like the next big trend in food and Yael, I want to ask you, because you have kind of like a a more of like a theoretical perspective on it, the same question, but with you guys, I'm more interested in terms of what you think about ingredients, and then for you, Yael, I'm, ter- I'm more interested in like what you think about in terms of culture. Like, for example, I know we've had a big year with like, you know, kale and, and Brussels sprouts and all that, sure. and you guys kind of have the ability to help affect and influence and, and shape what kind of food trends might be coming next it's funny that you ask me that in terms of ingredients we were just talking because about my it, friend too. just <laughs> sent me a text message he lives in hudson new york and um thinks a lot about foraging and he was like are ramps gonna trend this year and i responded like oh my god ramps like let's go foraging and i was like oh wait you're actually asking me a totally different question 
And no, they're not trendy anymore. They're, I don't think they're, they're an ingredient. They were already they're trendy. just a they part were. of it. They're just no. like people oh. use ramps in the spring. People use rhubarb in the spring, but there isn't this kind of craze. Same thing with a lot of vegetables. And I think that the trend thing also is like really perpetuated by the media. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, like I think that people are using a lot of like seasonal products and it's like the reason people have a Brussels sprout dish on is because they're available and like I mean and that's maybe like a little bit generous because I think people also use Brussels sprouts when they're not available but um, I think that um, the trends may not be so much um, about what the ingredient is so much as like what the media says the trend is in a way or maybe technique related technique related or i think also um like more casual food is gonna be trending in a pretty big way communal I, I, eating that and i think like good quality fast food mm-hmm. um i think is probably gonna be trending in a pretty big way i think with like uh, you know places like doing better things like you know or trying to do better things in a fast food way like you know like dos toros or mm-hmm. something like that you know um, trying to like source their things decently well and like put out a good product that people can grab, especially in places like New York City and places where people like live in a very dense making urban quality center. food more yeah. affordable. Yeah, I think that that's a big industry direction in my yeah. opinion. And also, I think um, mid-range food. Like, yeah, we talked about totally. that a lot at Glassery, about how in San Francisco there are a lot of places where you can go and have a good meal at a reasonable price. Nothing fancy, but really solid. And in New York, it's a little bit harder to find that. Mm -hmm. And also, like, really thoughtful chefs who are doing, like, who want to be doing mid-range food because they want it to be accessible and affordable to people like them. Yeah. 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 Great. How about you, Yeah. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot. No, not at all. Uh, It's actually funny because we were talking about Middle Eastern cuisine, but it seems to me that now it's going to be breaking that down into more specific cuisines, Mm -hmm. that people are more knowledgeable and they're looking for the Israeli cuisine or the Lebanese cuisine or the Moroccan cuisine, you know, and, and, you know, breaking down those big um, categories into more specific stuff. And kind of along the women (laughs) trend, uh, I'm wondering if home cooking um, is becoming more valued ah. and looked to as as kind of a, an important source. So I think, you know, kind of leaving off that very precious yeah. kind of Do plate. you mean more as a model for restaurants or just moving yeah. back into the home? No, and I think also in restaurants, I think influencing. I mean, I, I was just thinking about that with the League of Kitchens, that people from the restaurant worlds are looking to these women, mostly women, home cooks, um, as, as a respected uh, source for these, um, for you know, ex- as experts on these cuisines, and looking for home cooking as something that's more approachable, uh, both economically and you know, more family style, more warm, and you know, on a variety of levels. So I think that might be something that we'll see influencing restaurant culture as well. And um, kind of my other hat is the sort of. Um, working with this app company and we've just are finishing a project with the James Beard Foundation featuring all these big name chefs um, you know but looking at vegetable recipes that they've made and I know vegetables is kind of like we're at the end kind of the tail end of that trend but I think it's kind of cool to see these big name chefs featuring these vegetable recipes you know and not um, you know these big proteins yeah. so I think looking at side dishes and vegetables and stuff even from the big name chefs yeah. is kind of a switch I don't think we're on the tail end of like just eating lower on the food chain though in general I mean yeah. just yeah. in terms of necessity and that's gonna it's gonna just have to be the way 
Um, and I think that's a really interesting point, what you said, like associating this more Mediterranean, Middle Eastern culture with women, because I think we just came out of that big movement of seeing a lot of Asian culture um, exploding in the food movement, often associated with men, you know, Danny Bowen, um, David Chang, and all of that. And that was the kind of food that, you know, you can't really eat that food and then go home and replicate it. So I think there is a little bit of thoughtfulness with women when they when they think about you know this is something that I grew up with and I watched my mom make it and, and also the desire to be inclusive and to share yeah. all of that yeah. yeah and I have to say on that that we one of the recipes we made was from Judy Rogers and you can see the voice of the chef it's so different I mean you can see what Judy Rogers her voice was so attentive and so taking care really I had the feeling that she really wanted the recipe to be amazing mm-hmm. you know t- for me to succeed in making this dish perfect and it's not always the same voice that comes from Grant Ackett or Daniel Hume even though we uh, with our app we felt like we were able to rep- help people replicate that at home but it does it's a very different approach yeah this has been such a great show and oh, I feel lovely. like this conversation <laughs> shouldn't end and I hope that you know we can have you all back um, you know, in the future to uh, to continue talking about it. But in the meantime, it the is uh, umamifestival.org. Yael, thank you so much for being on the morning after. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Yael. And, uh, and Sarah Kramer and Sarah Hymanson, thank you so much. And everyone go to their City Grit dinner and follow them on Instagram at with or without an H. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? We here at the morning after, we actually have an Instagram and it's called at the morning after on Heritage Radio. We so do. And we're on Twitter. We're TMA on HRN. Sorry. Look at that. Always a pleasure. As well with you, <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. This Bye. is the morning after on Heritage Radio Network.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.